turn to Ecclesiastes. We'll be in Ecclesiastes 6 today. Kind of a short little passage um, with an even shorter poem at the end that we'll be looking at uh, kind of more intensely. Uh, so I'm going to get there with you. But this week, um, I was telling our Restore group this week, it's been, it's been an interesting week for, uh, for me personally, for Lily Beth. I was, I was reading this passage um, that does discuss kind of what Lamar uh, was saying before the second song there and uh, during it. And it's this, this idea of, um, of contentment and settling and enjoying and rejoicing for the life we've been given and the life we have rather than searching for this chasing after the wind idea. And it's, um, it's kind of coupled with this week at our Restore group, we talked about Isaiah 6, where um, these big, scary seraphs are screaming and flying around this temple area, yelling, proclaiming, uh, holiest is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory, which can also be translated, the whole earth is full of his weight. And so we discussed, we were like, okay, what can we do so that we can experience the Lord's weight this week? What can we do so that we notice the Lord's glory and can enjoy it? So I said, man, this is going to be a good undertaking. You know, I kind of expressed that to them, kind of gave that to, to us. And then the next morning I woke up <laughs> and realized it's more difficult than that, right? This contentment idea, it's so tricky and elusive. Um, I woke up and uh, this is kind of how my day unfolded. I woke up and I was so excited about a bowl of cereal because my sweet wife buys like my favorite kind of cereal. And um, I go to get the cereal and there's enough left for like one bowl. So there's the conundrum, right? Like she hasn't eaten cereal yet. There's one bowl available. And so I'm like, okay, <laughs> she's not in here yet. <laughs> I could sneak this bowl in there and be like, babe, there, there just wasn't very much. Like, I'm so sorry. Like you just, you're going to have to find something for breakfast. Let me help you fix it. You know, something like that. And so I'm like debating and I'm looking and I'm just getting sort of, and this is, sounds so silly, but it's kind of true. I'm getting sort of irritated because I'm like, I don't want half a bowl of cereal. I want the whole thing. Like I want an enjoyable pleasant bowl of cereal, but all that's left is half if I'm going to be a sweet husband. And so like, I'm a little irritated and I pour half of it in there and I still debate and I have the bag out and it's like half cereal at the bottom. And so she comes in and I was like, Oh, Hey, hey you know what? There's only enough for one. So you can have half. And then I, just because I love you, you know, I like taint it that way kind of, and she's sweet. So she says, Oh, well, thank you. That's fine. Um, that's sweet of you to leave me some cereal. And I'm just discontent with that, with cereal. And so I get in my Jeep and I'm going to work and I enjoy the, the vehicle God has given me. It's fun. I like it. And I'm on the way and no joke, there's a guy with a Jeep that passes me with, with better tires on it than mine. And immediately I look over and I'm like, oh man, I'm really thankful for this thing that I have to drive to work, but mm, those tires are really nice. If that would be cool. I wonder how long I would need to wait to propose that to my sweet wife. <laughs> that we need new Jeep tires in the vehicle that only I drive. Like, maybe that should come soon, you know? And so I'm like, no, gosh, what the heck? What is happening to me? So I, I'm going to work, and I, I noticed, too, no joke, the first hour of work, I have this kind of halfway committal facial hair situation happening to me right now that, again, Lily is allowing <laughs> for the time being. And a guy that looks like Britain comes in to work where I work. I'm like, real cool, man. Real cool. Sport your facial hair. To us that have like halfway committed facial hair. And no joke, I'm like, man, I wish I had a beard like that. That is such an awesome, manly beard. And the day keeps going on, and no joke, all through the day this happens. I'm at work, and I go make a pickup at this house. Um, we are hopefully 
going to have a house soon. We're hopefully going to close on. We're still crossing our fingers on the whole thing, trying to get everything ready. And it's a wonderful house that God has given to us, and we love it, and we're so hopeful for it. But I go make a pickup, of course, at a better house that's bigger and has certain things on the outside, certain kind of wood that I like for their decking that's, that's just a little more beautiful. And the guy's actually giving me flooring at this place. He like We've talked about it. He's going to give me flooring for our new place. And he's a really nice guy. And so I'm thankful for this blessing. And then I walk in and his floors look amazing. And so I just wish that I had enough to have those floors. And this, this hamster wheel keeps going and going and going all day. All day long, I'm attacked with this lack of contentment, this coveting things that I don't have. When I have a lot of things, when I have a wonderful, exciting, enjoyable life, where my friendships are rich, my my wife is amazing, my job provides me insurance. I meant it. I meant it. I didn't know. It is funny, I suppose. But it does, which is awesome. And I know that that's a thankful thing right now in Austin, Texas. And yet, over and over and over again, I met with this idea that somehow I deserve more. Somehow my life would be better and more, more meaningful if I would just chase after a little more wind, right? If I would run after things that I can't have a little longer. That's what I dealt with on a day where I hoped that everyone in our restore group would experience God's weight and joy. That's my day. And so let's read this passage. I think a lot of us deal with this, maybe even unawares, which is the real scary thing, is we may deal with this issue all the time and just not even know it. And so I want to read this passage. And um, again, we're in Ecclesiastes 6. Uh, I'm going to Read through this first part. Um, this is a transition chapter, by the way. Um, Ecclesiastes can be divided into two books. Um, this passage here is kind of the transition to the second half, okay? It's fairly important. And this is what it says. I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on men. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor so that he likes nothing his heart desires. But God does not able, enable him to enjoy them. And a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children, which doesn't sound good to me, but that's cool. It's whatever. Different time. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity, read that again, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs into darkness, in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun and knew anything, it has more rest than does this man who could not enjoy his prosperity. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place? This is the poem that I want us to focus on most today. All man's effort are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. What advantage has a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and what man has been known, no one can contend with one who is stronger than he. The more the words, the less the meaning. 
For how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow? Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he's gone? Um, Let's go back and look at that that form real quick. All man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. That's interesting imagery. um, That we work for an appetite for our mouth. This is all men work for the mouth. Um, A lot of guys writing commentaries a lot smarter than me will say that it's actually implying that we should only work for food, that that's kind of the only thing we should hunt for. But I don't think that's what it is. And and other writers will say different. They'll say that that's actually a, a great metaphor for our life because we have this insatiable appetite that needs and needs and needs every day, just like you're going to want to eat every day. Some of us even want to eat three times a day, right? Some of us more than three times a day. He says everything we do is for that appetite. Everything we do is for our mouth. Yet the appetite, he's using this as a way to describe the deeper kind of longing, not just the mouth and the taste, but the actual appetite. This, this longing fulfillment, this longing for fulfillment isn't quenched by our longing, by our desire to work and slave for, for things and for something under the sun again. And yet the appetite, the soul, the self, kind of the inward longing of you and I goes unquenched and just needs more for the mouth. It just needs more again. It needs more this, more that, better this, different that, prettier this, more understanding that, a more talented child, a better dad, the whole thing. And we go and we go and we spin our wheels and we trek on, hoping that surely someday we'll get just enough to just quiet the appetite for a moment so that we're not so restless and we're not so anxious and we're not so filled with longing that we can't enjoy what's happening our lives. And he moves on and he's setting up this line I want us to look at more and he says, what advantage has a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? And this isn't, it's not one of those rhetorical questions. You know, a lot of times in Ecclesiastes we treat the questions like they're rhetorical. He asks the question, what does a wise man not know that a fool knows? And we're like, oh, I don't know. Surely I'll come up with an answer. And the writer just says, no, no, I'm, I'm going to tell you. It's next. Just wait. It's coming. And he says this, better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and what man is has been known. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. I want us to look at verse 10 real quick. Whatever exists has already been named. And what man is has been known. No one can contend with one stronger than he. Okay, this is pointing directly to the act of God in our lives. The way he has placed your life right now. The way he has kind of directed and guided your steps. The life he he knew for you. As Psalm says, when you were in the mother's womb, he knew you and formed you there. And knew the days you would have and knew the good works prepared for you. It says, Paul writes, um, and it says that, it's, it's this idea that we have to understand and get straight right away that God has directed our steps, okay? A lot of us want to think 
that we've gotten to where we are by our own effort, by our own means. We want to think that even our failings, we've thrown ourselves off track with God. That uh, We don't have the life that he planned for us anymore because he doesn't know how I botched this part or how I took the wrong way here or my journey went awry when I did so-and-so in college or when I was 30 or whatever else it may be. And we want to act like now we're stuck making decisions for ourselves. Now we're stuck with this life we've created for ourselves. We're stuck with this existence and this job that we fell into because we chose poorly or because we just had to find one or whatever else. And, and right here we see Ecclesiastes is saying, look, whatever exists has already been named. Your tomorrow has, has already been named. God knows what awaits you. It doesn't surprise him. He's not upset about your current situation. He, he understands and wants to meet you there. In Acts 17, we have Paul uh, telling a group of really, really smart, smart guys at the Areopagus or Areopagus or however you want to say it. That's probably not the way I do. And Paul, Paul tells these guys, he says, look, here's the deal. God has set the times and places for you. And he has directed the exact places where you should live. He said, God has set the times for you. God has set the exact places where you should live so that men might seek him. Do do we understand how how important that is and how poignant that, that God has directed you even to now, even to today, He's directed you to marry who you're going to marry and the kids that you'll get to look at every night and this, this job that you have that you toil over or that you enjoy, this, this place of community where you come to try to find out more about him or celebrate him together. He says, he has set that into motion for you. And he didn't just do it haphazardly. He did it so you and I might enjoy him. That we might reach out and find him. He goes on to say, because he's not far from each one of us. And yet we, we treat this time in our life, this place where we live, this job that we have, as if we're supposed to be reaching for ourselves, right? As if we're supposed to be reaching for what more we can have and grasping that with all our might. And God says, no, 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 no. I set this time for you. I, I set up this exact place you would go because I want you. I want you to reach out for me and find me because I'm just not far from each of you. And yet, for some reason, we treat that with disdain. And Ecclesiastes says, some of our response to that is that no one can contend with one who is stronger than he. We want to contend with that place we've been given. We want to contend with this life that God has blessed us with. We want to contend with this idea that this spouse is for us. That these kids are our kids and they'll be ours and we're to, to love them and cherish them as we go. And we contend with that, right? Um, Paul describes it in Romans 9. And he, he says it like this. He's very upfront. Um, he says, but who are you, O man, to talk back with God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me this way? Does not the potter have the right to make out the same lump of clay, some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? We get upset because our job doesn't show how great we are like other people's jobs show how great they are. We get upset and we say, well, I deserve more respect. 
Sometimes we get upset because our spouse isn't as funny as that one. Or not as sweet to me or fulfill my needs the way that one obviously does to their partner. Or like that one could to me. And the roving of the appetite begins. And Paul says, look, here's the thing. It's like a pot telling a potter he doesn't like it. That's like, um, I don't know, this is a terrible example. Just disclaimer. But my buddy Tyler Northcutt, he's, he's not here, but he is a great artist. And I'm, this is all I was thinking about this week, trying to find something that would fit with that. But anyway, he um, is a great artist. I have no idea if he's ever done pottery in his whole life, but I'm going to assume he has right now. And let's assume that he is making pottery on the wheel, spending time with it, wanting to make a vase for his wife, okay, who is also very cool, like they both are. And he's making her a vase, because that's what cool people would do rather than go buy one, because <laughs> they can't make anything. So he's making this beautiful vase. He gets it exactly like he wants it. He even makes it imperfect on purpose so that people might look at it and say, oh man, that, you know what, that, that imperfection actually looks kind of cool. That, that's nice. Good job, Tyler, for making such an interesting piece that's a little curved when it should be straight or, or maybe straight when it should be curved or it actually doesn't have a handle. I like that. That's nice. But instead, when the vase is finished, it comes out of the kiln. It's beautiful. It's just the way he desired it, even though he understands that other people like different vases, even though he knows at Crate and Barrel you can buy one for twice as much and it looks differently for whatever reason. And that vase speaks to him and says, you know what? No, I don't like this. It's like, what? Excuse me? He's like, actually, I wanted to hold coffee because that's way nicer. Flowers, I only hold them occasionally. I'd rather hold your coffee every day. Make me into a coffee potter uh, cup. That's what I'm looking for. I was like, pot? No. What? Uh, make me into a coffee cup. And he says, no, no, no. You, you don't understand. You're beautiful. I like this. I like what your purpose is. He says, no, absolutely not. Make me into a coffee cup or I'll make myself into a coffee cup. It's like, excuse me? I, I, see, that's not possible though because I've created you to do this. You're not going to hold coffee very well. He says, no. If you don't make me into a coffee cup, I'll break myself and I'll break everything you've made. He says, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Settle down, vase. And the vase says, no, you don't understand. I want to be a coffee cup so bad that if you don't, I'll throw myself off this table and I'll break me. Let's see if you can hold flowers in me then. He says, no, look, I have a beautiful purpose for you. He says, no, in fact, I'm going to break everything I can because I'm not getting what I want. I would rather be used for a different purpose. And we, all the time, we get upset our purpose isn't what we thought it'd be when we were 20. Our life isn't as magical as we dreamed when we were freshmen in college or when we were first married at 25. Our kid isn't as perfect as it was on the day it was born. And so we say, I am so angry that I've been shortchanged that I'm going to break everything. I will, I will ruin what you've given me. I will ruin my marriage because I don't like the way it's going. I will, I will ruin my job and hate it and be cantankerous there and make everyone upset that they know me at my work because it's not what I wanted to do. I'm going to break what you've given me. I'm going to mar the people around me because I am not pleased with my lot. And we say this so arrogantly. And then we laugh about a vase wanting to be wonder why we're 
so difficult to please. You know? He goes on in the verse before. He says this, better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. That word roving, the appetite is how NIV kind of decides to word that. Quite literally, it could be the walking about of desire. It's an interesting word picture, right? Roving of the appetite is nice, but walking about of desire. This is better what your eye can see than the walking about of your own desires. This meandering, the word actually implies kind of a a pointless wanderer, kind of like a meander through this life, not knowing what we want, but knowing it's not here presently, right? A lot of us live in that. We're not really sure what would satisfy us, but we know it's not this, yeah? And so we wander about. Our appetite roves. We don't find what we're looking for. We haphazardly go through our marriages. We haphazardly go through our jobs where the kingdom is happening and they are full of the weight and glory of God, yet we meander because it's not what we wanted it to look like. And we never really experience. We never really, as the writer says, see with our eyes. All week, very quietly and sometimes very loud, the Holy Spirit has wanted to point and say to me, open up your eyes. Better what your eye can see, Austin, than the wandering about of desire. So open your eyes. Look for me around you. Look at the blessings all about you. Look how wonderful I've created your lot. For us, we, some of us, we, we understand these things. We're just not looking. We're just not a, a, attempting to actually see. We walk about and we, I don't know if it's familiarity, but our job no longer is good enough for us. Our husband or wife is no more, is no longer really what we need. Because we're familiar with that. And so begins the wandering of desire. Our cars, our house, our kids that have very special talents but aren't like those talents and those kids that don't behave like those children with those parents make us dissatisfied and we don't open our eyes and see. Our appetites, here's the truth for us, our appetites will forever rove. You will ever wonder until we open our eyes. Until we truly look at what God has given to us. The blessings in our lives, you will continue to wonder. I will continue to wonder. I will continue to lose satisfaction. I will continue to covet. I won't be content until the first start of that is to actually open our eyes to what's around us. And after that, I think we need to notice some things. So I want to I want to read a few passages for what we are to notice, possibly. A few passages on contentment. Um, you can read these later. That's fine. Um, just jot them down. You can just listen. You don't have to turn there with me. One is Hebrews 13. It's verse 5. This is, verse 5, it says, Keep your lives free of the love of money and be content with all you have. Because God has said, Never will I leave you Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. 
And he says, be content with what you have. Don't chase after this love of money, this love of mammon, this love of what can't be had because you'll never have enough. And he says, it's interesting. Once we open our eyes to that, he says, kind of the, the key here, the secret, and he's going to actually use the work, this mystery or secret here in a minute. But he says, here's the deal. Stop loving these other things. Be content with what you have because the Lord himself says he is with you. He will never forsake you. His presence is ever constant. So don't let the appetite rove. You can't have better than what is presently constant. And the fact that Christ will never leave us nor forsake us. He goes on to say in Philippians 4.11. says this. Um, I am not saying this because I am need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. Okay, this makes me excited. Okay, when I find someone in Scripture saying, I have learned the secret to whatever it would be. They could say, I've learned the secret to <laughs> multiplying our Reese's peanut butter puffs. Whatever it would be. He says, I have learned the secret of contentment. We should perk up our ears, right? He kind of mentions it. Not he isn't Paul, but someone in Hebrews kind of mentions it here. That the reason we don't have to be discontent is because Christ doesn't leave us or forsake us. And then he says here, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Is that I've learned this dramatic thing that's changed my life. Whether I have a lot of money or a little money. Whether I have the marriage that I've always dreamed of or I don't. And I have to work on it daily because I'm not very good at it. Whether I have the perfect kids or the awesome yet imperfect kids. Whether my job satisfies me like I dreamed it would or whether it doesn't. Whether my house is large or small or I ate today or I didn't. He says, here is the secret to the contentment. I can do all things through him who is the strength giver. Again, we have this change of focus. It's, it's the open our eyes change of focus. The fact that the secret of our contentment, the secret of our enjoying the present, is the understanding that, as simple as it may sound, Christ is all in all for you. Legitimately. Whether you know him well or not at all, The secret of contentment, he says, is to know that in Christ I have great strengths. The secret, he says, is understanding and realizing and open my eyes to enjoying the fact that Christ says he will never leave me or forsake me. Is my job is fine. Because Christ doesn't leave me or forsake me. My inadequacies, my vices, I can still enjoy my life because Christ will give me strength to overcome them. My marriage that is hard, when that one doesn't look so hard, Christ is with us and will continue to be so. He is my all in all in all and the whole earth is full of his weight. Colossians, I love it, describing this Christ. He says, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For by him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. All things were created by him and for him, and in him they hold together. And so does our contentment. Only in him will it be held together. Only understanding this will we understand and be able to enjoy and practice the enjoyment the rest of the book will talk about over our present situation and circumstance. He will go on to proclaim, after proclaim, after proclaim to enjoy what God has given you, this life that we have. We can't do so if we just try really hard. You can't conjure up contentment. I, I tried to on Friday and it didn't go so well. From the cereal to the beard to the Jeep, whatever. But noticing that Christ is my all settles me. It can quiet our souls. It would be people that truly look about us so that Christ can cure our roving appetite, so that he can still our wandering of restless desire, so that we might enjoy our present, him, and the blessings he's given to us to the full. Let me pray for us.